Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are mostly theological and biblical, but in this series, historical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. This is the eighth of eight episodes in a series that has tracked the history of the 2nd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry USA from the formation of the regiment through its first major action in the Battle of Mill Springs. Southern men who fought in the Union Army in the Civil War. Don't call them Yankees. One of them, Alvis Duncan Hicks, was my ancestor, my grandmother's grandfather. But I'm telling this story because I believe that a life is not inconsequential just because it's without fame. In our last episode, the Army's orders frustrated the men of the 2nd Tennessee in their desire to march back to their home state. But in December of 1861, they finally got a summons to march into action somewhere. The town of Somerset, which was now threatened by a Confederate force led by their old adversary, General Felix Zollicoffer, who had crossed the Cumberland and made winter camp at Beech Grove. There in Somerset, they spent their first Christmas of the war. And now, they waited to see what would happen next. My special sources for this chapter, besides the official record, include the Battle of Mill Springs, Kentucky by Stuart W. Sanders, the massively detailed Mill Springs by Kenneth A. Haffendorfer, Master of War, The Life of General George H. Thomas by Benson Bobrick, George Thomas, Virginian for the Union by Christopher J. Einolf, the Memoirs of Paul Grogger, 2nd Volunteer Infantry Regiment, USA, by Paul Grogger, and The Adventures of Jack Snow, by Andrew Jackson Snow. Tennessee Men, Chapter 8, The Battle of Mill Springs, January 19, 1862. A Miserable Slog Through the Mud. On Christmas Day, 1861, Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston wrote with evident chagrin, The position of General Zollicoffer on the Cumberland holds in check the meditated invasion and hopeful revolt in East Tennessee. But I can neither order Zollicoffer to join me here nor withdraw any more force from Columbus without imperiling our communications toward Richmond or endangering Tennessee and the Mississippi Valley. His best hope was that Division Commander George Crittenden would find some way to remedy Zollicoffer's mistake, perhaps by exploiting the sluggish consolidation of federal forces. Union General Albin Sheff, commanding a brigade under George Thomas, was there to check Zollicoffer. He continued trying by various moves and probes to draw the newspaper man-turned-general out of his fortified position and into an open engagement, but without success. Don Carlos Buell, commanding the Army of the Cumberland, was not impressed with the Polish-born general's performance and confided to McClellan, Shep is not incompetent, but has not shown much enterprise at Somerset. I must reserve my judgment about him. Now, actually, Shep had proposed a plan about two weeks earlier, and had Buell permitted Thomas to move, they might have had success. And Buell might have developed a more favorable impression of his brigade commander. The plan, however, would have required the participation of the full division, and Buell was not then ready to commit to that. Confederate cavalryman John Hunt Morgan's mid-December raids and bridge-burning deep inside Federal lines helped change Buell's mind regarding the seriousness of the rebel encroachment in that sector, 
He finally decided that Zollicoffer had let himself into a trap and that it would be a shame to let him wriggle out of it. He released Thomas to move. But then he also handed his division commander a pre-drawn plan of attack, which included the advice that the move should be made rapidly and secretly and without any tarrying on the road. What he was looking for was a way to make Thomas's attack on Zollicoffer the beginning of a concealed, coordinated movement. Well, such plans made so remotely from the action invariably run into trouble as soon as they reached the place of battle, but in this case, Buell's plan had problems even making it to the battlefield. Thomas set out from Lebanon on New Year's Day, and the bone-chilling rain seemed to have no let-up. The weather and the awful road conditions conspired with the enemy to turn a march of a few days into a slog that consumed half a month. Even an army of tested veterans would have had difficult time making that march, but many of the troops and even the animal teams were raw, according to Thomas's own description, and it would have been difficult to move them under good conditions. Wagons and cannons sank up to their axles. Supplies couldn't catch up to the infantry, and the men often suffered through cold days and nights without rations. A pot of hot coffee was a precious treasure. The men couldn't help but notice that the gray mud they scraped off their shoes was the same color as the soap they were issued, and the common joke was that they were marching to protect the army's supply of soap. One forty-mile stretch alone took eight grueling days. On the 13th, Thomas wrote to Buell, The road, which has been represented as good, is the worst I ever saw, and the recent rains have made it one continuous quagmire. The road ahead, he added, is represented by my scouts as much worse than the roads the command has already passed over. Logan's Crossroads Toward the end of that week, Thomas's army at last drew near its objective. Samuel P. Carter was not satisfied to sit still in Somerset with his East Tennesseans. His men had been frustrated too long, and they needed to see action. The naval officer turned brigadier wanted to make sure his volunteers did not miss out on this fight. On Friday, January 17th, around 10 o'clock in the morning, the 2nd Tennessee and its companion regiments broke camp in Somerset to march up the Columbia Road, halting for a rest on the east bank of Fishing Creek. The weather, at this point, was fair. About one o'clock that afternoon, Thomas finally reached the crossroads near the Logan House and made camp about eight miles, both from Shep's camp to the east and Zollicoffer's to the south. He arrived with his vanguard, consisting of the 10th Indiana, the 9th Ohio, the 2nd Minnesota, Colonel Frank Walford's 1st Kentucky Cavalry, and one battery. Four other regiments, including one of infantry, were still bogged down on the road from Columbia a day or two behind. So Thomas quickly set up headquarters in a base camp and sent out aggressive pickets of infantry and cavalry, and then summoned his field commanders. Well, Carter's brigade was in the advance position on the Columbia Road, but Shep, along with his staff and a cavalry escort, had caught up with him. So on receiving Thomas's summons, they rode ahead to meet him. The skies were now overcast that afternoon as Thomas convened his meeting to discuss plans to dislodge the Confederates. He wanted Shep's force to unite with his as soon as possible, but that brigade was a full day's march away. Thomas took approving note of the forward position of Carter's troops, and gave orders for them to join him right away at Logan's Crossroads. 
So, around the time that they would ordinarily be thinking about preparing supper, the Tennessee and Kentucky boys got orders to cross Fishing Creek and make the three-mile march to Logan's Crossroads. And then it began to rain again. The already swollen creek was still crossable by the infantry, but the battery of two howitzers and two parrot guns struggled hard against the swift current and the increasingly muddy road. The supply wagons never made the crossing, which meant that there would be no hot food and no tents for the men for the next two nights and days. The second was again at the head of the column and marched around the bend where the Somerset Road met the Farmerstown Road about a half mile east of General Thomas's headquarters. Right behind them, the 1st East Tennessee and the 12th Kentucky made camp short of the bend on the north side of the Somerset Road. They ate whatever rations they had carried, mainly hardtack, huddled under shared coats and blankets for shelter from the bone-chilling rain. The rain let up during the night, but at daybreak it brought little cheer as the sun rose behind heavy clouds, and adding to the heaviness were the feelings of dread and nervous excitement of impending battle. Private Jack Snow remembered a local woman driving a one-horse buggy through the camp, stopping at intervals to sell pies. He happily and hungrily bought one. But before a crowd could gather, she whipped her horse and moved on up the road, sold another pie, and then moved again. Well, that was curious to him, because had she stayed at one spot, she could have sold all her pies in minutes. She was a rebel spy, he concluded, and reported back to General Crittenden that the Union Army was out there with three parts of regiments. That accounts for the sending out of General Felix K. Zollicoffer to his doom the next day. Jack Snow was right. It seems that not one, but two local widows were feeding Crittenden information, and he was at least partially dependent on them. Friday, January 17th, he had learned of Thomas's near approach. He had been dithering since his arrival whether to attempt an evacuation of Zollifkoffer's camp, but the rookie general had finally prevailed on him that withdrawal across the river was impractical, which it truly was. Well, Jack Snow was right. It seems that not one, but two local widows were feeding Crittenden information, and he was at least partially dependent on them. Friday's January 17th, he learned of Thomas's near approach. He had been dithering since his arrival whether to attempt an evacuation of Zollicoffer's camp, but the rookie general had finally prevailed on him that withdrawal across the river at this point was impractical, which it truly was. Zollicoffer argued that the divided and disorganized condition of the Union force opened a possibility for a real victory if the attack was made quickly and forcefully. Though beginning Saturday morning at daylight, Crittenden managed to move two of his Tennessee infantry regiments from Mill Springs to the north side of the river, having at his disposal only a small sternwheel steamboat and two flatboats. The evening rains soon turned the Cumberland once again into a rushing torrent, and that was the end of that troop transfer. So that evening he convened a council of war. Crittenden's official report indicates he had made his decision to attack before the meeting. Others, however, describe Crittenden as indecisive, and Zollicoffer as vigorously pressing for an attack. Later, some spread the credible but not necessarily true rumor that Crittenden had been drinking heavily. The decision was made to march. A two-pronged assault plan was drawn and an order of battle assigned. Around midnight, two Confederate columns marched out into the incessant winter rain. Their objective was to hit the Federal lines at first light, take them by surprise, and sweep over them before they could form a line of resistance.
Back at Logan's Crossroads, the objective of the men of the 2nd Tennessee was far more basic. Try to stay warm enough and dry enough to get a little rest. They would remember the pouring rain of this night for the rest of their lives. It defied description, diarist Paul Groger wrote, There's no use to say anything about the rainy, muddy times, for the like was hardly ever seen. The Long Roll To the Union troops, the placement of regiments for bivouac may have seemed incidental. In fact, their arrangement showed Thomas's defensive mind at work, setting up a strong line should Crittenden try to stage a surprise attack. Now, he didn't specifically expect one, but he was an experienced soldier who would not be caught unawares. The best regiment at hand, the 10th Indiana, was set in the most forward position, and a strong picket line perimeter was set up covering all the roads. Two companies from the 10th Indiana blocked the Mill Springs Road, while a squadron from the 1st Kentucky Cavalry was sent further down to guard the road at Timmy's Branch, a small, shallow tributary to Fishing Creek. The 1st and 2nd East Tennessee, being the least experienced, least tested, and least well-equipped, were assigned camp spots near in the rear, near Logan's Crossroads, but one company from each were assigned to occupy and guard the Robertsport Road. Thomas's troop deployment would be crucial to the course and outcome of the battle. Being stationed at the crossroads put the Tennesseans in position for the backup role in the upcoming battle, uh, a role for which they were better suited. After a night and day of cold, wet weather, it was a miserable night to walk picket, and no less miserable to try to sleep. The rain was incessant, and the men of Carter's brigade had no tents for shelter, and even if they could start a fire and keep it going, the coffee that was their only comfort on a night like this was hard to find. A Minnesota soldier called it the darkest night and the coldest, most pitiless and persistent rain we ever knew. And a Hoosier wrote, We sleep on our arms, prepared for work at show notice. Dawn doesn't really break on a day like this. It only lightens the sky from iron black to dull pewter gray. The Tennessee men were beginning to stir, starting to prepare breakfast as they could, breaking up their hardtack, mixing it with the rainwater falling into their tin plates to make an edible mush. About seven o'clock, the morning quiet was broken by the long roll, the drummer's summons to get weapons and prepare for battle. Now, the rebel attack had actually begun more than a half hour earlier, but the thick woods had muffled the musket fire and shouts of men a mile down the road. First shots were fired about ten minutes after six, actually, when Crittenden's advance cavalry ran into the first picket line set by Thomas's first Kentucky cavalry at Timmy's Branch. Crittenden's plan of attack was simple and direct. Two columns, totaling a little over 5,000 men, would advance in order from Beech Grove north on the Mill Springs Road and engage the enemy as soon as he was reached. The first column was led by Felix Zollicoffer, the second by William Carroll accompanied by Crittenden as the commanding general. Supposing Thomas's present force to comprise only two or three regiments, he counted on surprise, shock, and force of numbers to roll back the Federal line. The first column was not to stop to form a line until enemy resistance forced it. That it was a night maneuver added its own degree of difficulty, but the pelting rains that began about the same time as the march, midnight, turned it into a brutal slog that reduced the pace to one mile per hour. Yet, when the Confederates hit the Union lines, they did so with astonishing spirit and energy. 
They were met, however, with far more resistance than their commanders had anticipated. The Kentucky cavalrymen on the picket line had faced fire before and were not quickly chased away. After the first shots were fired, the picket, about 20 men, fell back to a strong point on higher ground, dismounted, preparing to repel what they thought was a harassing skirmish squad like the one they had driven back the previous morning. Felix Zollicoffer, at the head of the first column, ordered his infantry forward, led by the 15th Mississippi, the only Confederate regiment that carried rifled muskets. Most of the Confederates in the attack were armed with smoothbore muskets, and many of those were old flintlocks, made faulty by the wet weather. The Kentuckians continued to obstruct the rebel advance up the narrow road, even as it became clear that they were hopelessly outnumbered. But before they could be surrounded, they retreated to the first infantry picket line of the 10th Indiana, which quickly withdrew back to fuse their line with another one some 300 yards up the hill. The time was 6.40 a.m. Thinking that this firing line was the front of the main Federal force, which was still more than a mile away, Zollicoffer halted the advance to bring up his brigade in force to form a line of battle. That several-minute delay allowed time for couriers to alert the commander of the 10th Indiana. In turn, Colonel Mollen Manson, new to brigade command, instead of sending an aide, mounted his own horse and rode to alert the rest of the army and finally arrived at Thomas's tent, hatless, breathless, and disheveled. Thomas reportedly interrupted him, Damn you, sir, go back to your command and fight with it. Actually, not all of the versions of this story by eyewitnesses have Thomas swearing, and to be sure, Thomas was largely known for his avoidance of profanity in stark contrast to other generals, uh, particularly his later commander, the extravagantly profane Rosecrans. But the heat of the moment and the fact that it was so remembered, despite Thomas's usual character, lends, I think, some credence to the account. Meanwhile, the fighting intensified as the rest of the 10th Indiana moved forward to join their comrades. Despite being pressed by two Confederate regiments, the 10th held firm. The increase in visibility from the morning light was offset by smoke from the black powder weapons that added to the rain and fog to make it hard for both sides, although the defenders doubtless had the greater advantage from it. Bolstering the 10th's line, Colonel Speed Fry ordered his 4th Kentucky Infantry forward. Back in their camp, the men of the 2nd Tennessee were still struggling to get into formation, and there was considerable confusion. It was taking too long. There was a question whether they would be ready to meet the rebel attack. The pressure increased the disorder. Private Calvin Greenwood later wrote, The 2nd was just getting breakfast and supposing it to be just a picket fight, kept on cooking and eating. Though... Very few had eaten anything when Lieutenant Colonel Truett promptly got us in line and double-quicked us into the road. Around 7.50 a.m., Samuel Carter received orders from Thomas to move his brigade to the far left flank to watch the Somerset Road. By 8 o'clock, they were on the move. It's unknown whether Thomas anticipated an attack from that direction or whether it was to set them apart as a reserve unit. Then suddenly, before... The second could move out. A powerful rifle column in blue overcoats came up behind them and, without slowing their quick step, swept past them, heading down the road south toward the sounds of battle. Their sergeants called out the cadence in German. It was the Ninth Ohio. So swift and purposeful was their stride that the Tennessee men had the impression that they had marched all night and didn't stop until they hit the line. 
Years later, Jack Snow still felt the surprise and the relief of their arrival. We didn't know they were there, but we sure were glad to see them. In fact, this unit of European-trained German immigrant veterans had arrived late the day before, and their camp was just up the road. Battle-tested in European wars, better equipped and drier and better rested since they had slept in tents. The ninth was also at hand when Thomas first heard of the attack, and he immediately ordered that regiment forward. The second marched a little over half a mile to reach the intersection of the Somerset and Mill Springs roads and were placed in a line on open ground just south of the camp of the Ninth Ohio Battery. Their sister regiment, the first, was deployed in a wooded area to their left, and the third regiment of the brigade, the 12th Kentucky, stretched the left flank further. A Confederate battery apparently got a beat on their position and began shooting in their direction, but their aim was off and no damage was done. Colonel Manson of the 10th Indiana tried to pull the 1st East Tennessee into his own line in the woods, but Carter caught them before they could go too far and ordered them back. He did not want his brigade to be broken up, and rightly so. Zollicoffer Falls The fighting below was furious, although often disorganized. The broken terrain, ridden with clefts, ravines, and thickets, along with the fog, made it difficult, if not impossible, for either side to keep a battle formation. It was harder on the attacking force, however. And it didn't help that Zollicoffer was acting more like a regimental colonel for the 19th Tennessee rather than the brigade commander. Also, the rain rendered many of the flintlocks worthless, although some after-battle reports probably exaggerated the number of misfires. Some said misfires were one in five or one in three or even 50 percent. But according to Sanders, archaeological recovery of musket balls suggests that the ratio of misfires was more like one in ten. Still, it is acknowledged that weapons failure did play a role in the Confederates' inability to break the Union defense. After three hours of fierce combat, punctuated by periodic brief lulls as Zollicoffer continued to try to figure out what was in front of him, his attack had stalled. On his right, the 15th Mississippi and the 20th Tennessee faced the 4th U.S. Kentucky Infantry, crouched behind a rail fence at the top of a hill with a deep ravine between them. On his left, the 19th Tennessee was still faced by stubborn resistance from the battered 10th Indiana. Zollicoffer realized he had lost connection with half his force, and he called a ceasefire while he reconnoitered. Accompanied by aides, he spurred his horse up the Mill Springs Road toward the fence where he apparently assumed his right wing should have arrived. He was wearing a white rubberized coat, blue trousers, and blue cap, so he was not immediately recognizable in the rain and fog and smoke as a Confederate. Colonel Speed Fry of the 4th Kentucky met him on the road within a few yards of the Union line, and supposing him to be a Union officer, Fry rode toward him. Zollicoffer was nearsighted, and not comprehending his position, he thought he had reached the extremity of his own line and called out to Fry, We mustn't fire on our own men, indicating the Tennesseans down at the bottom of the ravine. At that moment, Zollicoffer's aides came into view, and Fry, realizing that this was the enemy, drew his pistol and called on his men to open fire. Zollicoffer tried to wheel his horse and cried out, It's the enemy! Charge them! Too late. He fell, 
struck by bullets fired by Fry and two of his riflemen. Only one of his three aides escaped alive. It was 9.20 a.m. The Rebel Tennesseans The Rebel Tennesseans, shocked and dismayed by the fall of their general, fell back. Zollicoffer's death became an immediate sensation in the Union ranks. His body a curiosity, and his paraphernalia the attraction of souvenir hunters. Even the 2nd Tennessee volunteers, half a mile removed from the spot, caught wind of the event. Passing by where his body had been moved more than an hour later, Jack Snow remembered seeing soldiers trimming pieces of his clothes, especially his buckskin jacket. Snow assumed that his light-colored rubberized coat was buckskin. They had to take his body away to keep them from taking every piece of clothing he had on. I didn't get any souvenir. I just went up and looked at him. He was already dead. The lull in the fighting was short-lived. Crittenden arrived on the scene, contrary to some reports that had him absent from the field, and his second column finally made it up to the field. At 9.30, he was informed of Zollicoffer's death and assigned the command of that brigade to the senior regimental commander. And like Zollicoffer, having little knowledge of what force lay before him, probably assumed he only needed to break through the exhausted men atop the hill. So Crittenden ordered Carroll to renew the attack with his brigade, supported now by artillery that had been brought forward. The Battle Turns General George Thomas, having taken pains to dress for his first battle as a general, was now on the field, surveying the state of the battle and the condition of his line. He has been criticized for taking his time just to make a proper appearance, but, you know, it's really hard to see what he could have done before this time to improve the situation on the front. He had already set a firm line, he had already ordered his best fresh troops forward, and this was exactly the right time for his arrival at the front. He ordered the 2nd Minnesota to reinforce the main line, and the Germans of the 9th Ohio to extend it to the right to prevent flanking. Astride his horse and wearing his new general's uniform for the first time, Thomas was an impressive figure to the troops, calmly watching the action from a spot directly behind the main line of battle. At one point he ordered a ceasefire to let the smoke pass away so that poor visibility would not cause his men to fire on their own advancing comrades. The Confederates, thinking the ceasefire indicated a retreat, charged up to the rail fence, now manned by the fresh Minnesotans, where they were met with a withering volley. And then came several minutes of savage close-on fighting where the soldiers from both sides were attempting to bayonet their foes through the fence rails. By 10.20, the rail fence assault had worn itself out and the attackers fell back. And now Thomas began to press the counterattack. In these later hours of the battle, the rain had let up and was no longer a factor. The Hoosiers, who had been fighting all morning to hold a line, were now let loose to push back the Tennesseans, followed by the Ohio troops. Word came to Thomas that Shep would soon arrive from Somerset, and that led him to order Carter's brigade to move on Crittenden's right flank. Difficult terrain slowed their march, but the arrival of the 12th Kentucky to the front shortly after 10.30, followed hard by the 1st East Tennessee, spelled the end of the 20th Tennessee's and 15th Mississippi's effort to continue their attack. The 2nd East Tennessee 
was now in the cornfield, just above the action as the Confederates broke across the ravine for the woods, and they opened fire on them. The men of the 15th Mississippi looked up to see them coming down on them. Private Thomas Smith wrote in his memoir that they were advancing on us like a tornado, discovered the situation, and renewed the most deadly fire I experienced during the war. We dropped the remains and ran for our lives, making for the skirt of woods some distance in our front. Before the Mississippians could make good their escape, the men of the second captured a number of them. Crittenden had let his regiments be bunched together. Thomas gave the word to the Ninth Ohio, and the German troops from Cincinnati conducted a perfectly executed wheel movement that trapped the rebel left. The Second East Tennessee rounded the rise to see the gray line pressed hard on their left and now trapped on their right break hopelessly. By noon, the battle proper was over. The exhausted Confederate troops retreated in every path possible to try to make it back to their fortified camp. The Second was now part of the mop-up action and the taking of prisoners. The chase is on. Pap Thomas paused long enough for his troops to replenish their ammunition and reform their lines, but not long enough to eat. And then he ordered his army to pursue the enemy. But Alvis Hicks and his regiment did not get the break. Carter's brigade, having been only lightly engaged so far and having expended very little ammunition, were ordered to continue the pursuit straightway. It was about 1245. Thomas very much wanted to make his victory complete and capture the enemy before he was able to escape across the river. However, lacking an adequate cavalry screen and advanced scouting of the enemy's situation, he ordered his troops to advance in battle formation. It was a compromise of speed for security, guarding against a possible ambush or counterattack. But the further they advanced, the clearer it became that there would be no ambush, there would be no counterattack. The rebel retreat was a disorganized mess. Discarded weapons, blankets, overcoats, knapsacks, and haversacks littered the way as the fleeing army jettisoned anything that impeded their flight. Many of the knapsacks contained cornbread and biscuits, and some of the soldiers snatched them up and found a quick snack while on the march. But no doubt what made the greater impression on the men was the more horrible debris of battle, the mangled and bloodied bodies of the fallen. If they had been disturbed by the scene of battle at Camp Wildcat, they must have been doubly disturbed by what they saw along the Mill Springs Road. One of Shep's officers who came through the area hours later wrote, One of the most horrible scenes ever beheld presented itself. There lay the dead rebels in every conceivable state of mutilation, some without head, legs, arms, and we remember to have seen one poor deluded mortal that had been struck by a shell from one of our cannon, and all you could see of him was a bunch of clothes. Shep's brigade had finally crossed Fishing Creek and was now headed down the road to link up with the rest of Thomas's force. Kenneth Haffendorfer, in his volume on Mill Springs, passes along this story from a lieutenant in the 35th Ohio that involves a member of the 2nd Tennessee. He writes, As we were nearing Fishing Creek, we met citizens and stragglers from the army pressing for the rear. One squad would give the intelligence that Zollicoffer was killed, and the next squad met, contradicted the statement, and thus the matter alternated as one straggler after another was met and interrogated. This process furnished amusement for the men as they struggled through the deep mud. Presently, 
A wagon master from the 2nd East Tennessee Regiment was going to the rear with his train of wagons for supplies. What's the news at the front, was asked. Zollicoffer is killed, said in an abstract manner. That is contradicted, said one. Dead and in hell, said he with heroic emphasis, holding up a lock of hair, said, There's a bunch of the son of a gun's hair. I cut them off his head myself. This settled the question. We, we had no further doubts on that subject. Carter's brigade was assigned the west side of Mill Springs Road. They were soon joined on their left by acting Brigadier General Robert McCook's two regiments on the east side. Two artillery batteries followed the road itself with the rest of the army catching up behind. A battle line march is not the most efficient way to move an army. In open places, downhills, even over low obstacles, sometimes the line could even break into a run, but it's quite slow going through woods, brambles, and brush. And then the rain had started up again, and both the highway and the byways were becoming extremely muddy. One of the cannons got so stuck that the horses couldn't pull it out and it had to be left. After one mile, General Thomas paused the advance briefly, gave the men a rest, and then again after making two more miles. About 4.20 p.m., after about a five-mile march, the 2nd Tennessee men were among the first to arrive at the foot of Molden's Hill, where the Confederates had created a redoubt. The tired and hungry men advanced up the hill cautiously, expecting resistance. There was none. Samuel Carter wrote, Here the enemy was expected to make a stand. Wearied by a long march and without provisions during the day, the gallant men of the 12th Brigade advanced to the top of the hill with intrepidity and spirit. But the enemy had abandoned this important height, which commanded his fortified camp, about three-fourths of a mile on the opposite hills. They were now in a position overlooking the earthworks of the Beech Grove camp. Thomas brought up his artillery, and from this ideal position for a battery, began shelling the Confederate fortifications about five o'clock, which was sunset. Crittenden ordered return fire, but only a couple of guns were brought to bear, and apparently were about as exhausted as the rebel army, as all of its shots fell ineffectually short or comically wide. Jack Snow recalled how shells fell with a thud and failed to explode, and he said the shells had hardly hit the ground out in front of the Union lines and until some daring fellows went out and brought them in. No, I didn't go with them, he told the interviewer with a smile. I thought they were foolish, but then some of those boys would do anything. The Federal barrage, however, was effective, causing casualties and doing damage, but it was nearly dark now. Thomas had to decide whether to press the attack or wait until morning. Some of his officers urged him to attack, but he didn't want to do so until Shep's reinforcements had arrived. Long military experience taught that many, many things can go wrong when attacking in the dark. And Pap Thomas was very conscious of the fact that his men were not only exhausted from the march, but had not eaten all day, and realizing the men had probably reached their limit, all his officers finally agreed. At last, the men of the second were able to stop, try to get a fire going on all the dampness, and eat some rations. Compounding the exhaustion of the long day was the dread of the next. They could see the formidable breastworks from the crest of Molden's Hill, and all believed that the morning would see a bloody fight to the end. Jack Snow tells of how 
Having eaten nothing all day, he broiled a piece of fat-backed pork over a fire and ate it without bread. He says, I got awful sick that night, as sick as I've ever been in my life, I think. He looked up to see fires glowing from behind the breastworks and could hear a steamboat chugging. Convinced that Crittenden's army was receiving reinforcements, they were going to have to fight on the morrow. The second day, January 20th. Just before dawn, the men were issued coffee and hardtack for breakfast. Around 7 a.m., they were moved to the top of Molden's Hill to form a line of battle out in front of the half-mile breastworks. With artillery backing them up, the regiments were lined up for the assault. The 14th Ohio and 10th Kentucky were in the front, each sending a company ahead as skirmishers. The 2nd and 1st East Tennessee formed up on the right or west side of Mill Springs Road and McCook's Brigade to the left. Jack Snow recalled, It was a sight to see those soldiers spread out, thousands of them along that long line, ready to charge. Our artillery threw a few shells, which exploded near the breastworks, and we charged. I had to go through where one of those shells exploded and right up to the mouth of a rebel cannon. I thought every minute they were going to blow me up. When we reached the breastworks on top of the rise and looked down in their camp, the rebels were gone. The entire rebel camp, a veritable town of well-constructed cabins and tents situated along the bend of the Cumberland, lay eerily vacant. A correspondent from the Cincinnati Daily Times described houses, streets, lanes, stores, stables, everything complete except the inhabitants. Chickens, pigs, and turkeys were as numerous as are to be seen about a thrifty farmer's barnyard. Everything bore the appearance of the proprietor just having stepped out for a moment to soon again return. Remarkably, the army that had barely escaped yesterday in a panicked retreat had managed to stage a complete evacuation of some 5,000 men across a raging flooded river with a small steamboat and makeshift rafts. Rumors fled among the Federals that hundreds must have drowned trying to cross. But actually, there were few such losses. Indeed, there only one known by name. The camp wasn't completely deserted. A small company of engineers remained behind, along with several wounded. There were also some stragglers, which led to some humorous encounters. Jack Snow said, Lots of them had grub cooked up and ready to eat. I was in good shape to eat my breakfast when I found it. It was the best fixed army I saw during the war. They had cooking utensils and everything fixed up fine. When he was asked if all the soldiers ate, he replied, No, some of them were afraid they'd get poisoned, but not me. I was too hungry to think of that. Well, a rebel who had been out all night drunk came into the cabin where we were eating and wanted to know, Who in hell's been tearing up my things? Snow went on to describe going down to the river bank and seeing, scattered along a mile, clothes and possessions that the escaping troops had abandoned. I picked out myself a fine overcoat, he related, and well enough I did, for when I got back to where I'd left my things the day before, they were gone. People living around there stole everything they could get their hands on. Interestingly, he remembered that all the rebel clothing was civilian, no uniforms. The Aftermath 
It didn't take long before the second guessing began, even among the troops, which continues among historians and Civil War buffs to this day. As Jack Snow said to a friend, I believe if we had charged on into the camp after him the day before, we could have captured the whole army. But after the day that they had had, would George Thomas's army have had the energy and organization to make that charge with only minutes of daylight left? Yeah, our friend Private Snow seems to have had a short memory of how give out he was the night before. You know, generalship is always easier the day after than the day before. Did Thomas regret his decision to wait before going in? My guess is probably not, but we'll never know for sure because he didn't leave a diary or a memoir. Crittenden, though, got no credit for saving his army. Instead, he became the scapegoat for the failure of the attack, being accused, almost certainly falsely, of being drunk during the attack. An intervention from President Davis allowed him to resign his commission before facing a court of inquiry. On the other hand, Thomas's failure to corral Crittenden's army did not dampen northern enthusiasm for his victory, which was the first good news the Union had from the battlefield since the debacle at First Bull Run. The press celebrated the victory, which they had a hard time coming up with a name for. Is it Logan's Crossroads, Fishing Creek, Beach Grove, Mill Springs? Yeah, let's go with Mill Springs. Congress celebrated, too, with the Senate confirming Thomas's commission as Brigadier General on February 3rd. All the celebration continued for a little more than two weeks until Grant stole Thomas's thunder, taking Fort Henry on February 6th, and then a week later, capturing Fort Donaldson. And after that, everyone forgot about George Thomas and Mill Springs, and all about the men from East Tennessee and elsewhere who fought there. But those Tennessee men did not forget that battle or the significance of it, to the army, to the nation, and themselves. To them it meant validation, it meant authentication. Although they were only lightly engaged in the battle itself and suffered no casualties, they were an integral part of the victory. Used essentially as a reserve unit and sent late into the line, they effectively demoralized the last remnants of the Confederate attack. Seeing their approach, many of the rebel troops said now they thought they were outnumbered by thousands. The East Tennesseans followed their orders faithfully, executed them flawlessly, were an essential element of the mop-up operation, and endured the hardships of a non-stop day with no food without complaint to their superiors. Their toughness was a match for anyone on the field. At last, they felt like full-fledged, active-duty soldiers, not just an annoying appendage to the army. On the 21st, they marched back to Somerset. A couple of weeks later, they found themselves back at London, where they were finally outfitted with proper uniforms, Enfield rifles, all the standard accoutrements, and wagons to carry them. There's nothing like a victory on the battlefield to break up a bureaucratic logjam. They even got their own true regimental flag, a fairly standard design with an attacking eagle carrying the regimental ribbon in its beak on a field of blue. And now they were marching again in a direction that appeared to be carrying them back toward East Tennessee. Maybe now they were about to be set loose to liberate their homeland. Zollicoffer was out of the way, so who could stop them? Only the most unexpected wave of war could turn them back now. But as we have learned from history, the waves of a great war are both surprising 
and irresistible. There is much more story to be told, but we will have to return to it another time. You've been listening to Insight. I'm Gary Nation. Thanks for tuning in.